0: So this is Trinity Sunday, as you no doubt have guessed by now, I'm assuming, and this is a day in which we worship our one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is also a day that instantly strikes fear into all parents, because you know that on the car ride home today, your kids are going to ask you to explain the Trinity, and you're going to be terrified to do so, because it's a hard task, right? Right? Uh, always on, uh, leading up to this week, someone uh, invariably sends me this this YouTube video called, uh, I, I linked to it in our last weekly newsletter at the bottom. It's St. It's, uh, Patrick's Bad Analogies. And uh, this is a video where two Irishmen come and ask St. Patrick to explain the Trinity to them. And as he does so, he, he tries to use these various metaphors. He says, well, the Trinity, it's, it's like... You know, water. It, it can be water. It can be gas. It can be uh, ice. Uh, or he says that it, it's like a three-leaf clover. Uh, or it's like a sun that gives off light and warmth. And all throughout this, the the two. Uh, Irishmen keep complaining to St. Patrick that actually what he's expositing are all of these ancient heresies. He says, you know, they're like, no, that's modalism, or no, that's Arianism, or no, that's partialism. And and finally, St. Patrick, just completely exhausted, just recites to them one of the the old ancient creeds, the Athanasian Creed. And then the Irishmen are like, well, why didn't you just say that to begin with, (laughs) you know? And and in some traditions, we didn't today, because honestly it's it's a bit of a tongue twister, but in in a lot of churches they will be reciting the entire Athanasian Creed. Um, I'll let you look that up on the internet if you'd like, Um, but it it goes into very minute detail about what Christians have affirmed about the Trinity uh, for a very long time. So explaining the Trinity is extremely stressful, right? Right? Uh, for me, I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I going to not verge into the land of heresy this morning? And I'm sure that a lot of you feel this way too, uh, especially if you're talking with, with friends who maybe aren't believers or, or just even in normal Christian conversation trying to speculate and talk about what it is, uh, what, the, what the Trinity is and how to explain the Trinity. And this kind of makes sense that it would be so difficult to explain this key doctrine, because we're talking about the very mysteries of God himself. We're trying to peer into God himself. And of course, when we try to do this, all language will become stretched and limited and probably break at points and not actually be useful anymore. But that doesn't mean that these metaphors aren't useful. They're kind of helpful and in, in sort of creating a fence for us to understand the Trinity but it just means that that the language our human minds even are going to be limited in our ability to grasp the full uh, mysteries of Christ or of, of God Father Son and Holy Spirit so as you as you read through the Old Testament you begin to see these mutual relations within God himself NT Wright says within God himself you see a to and a fro you see a give and a take. You see a command and obey. You see love given and you see love received. And there's many examples of this kind of to and fro that Wright describes. We see God's spirit hovering over the waters of creation. God's word going forth to produce life. God's law drawing people into a righteous relationship with God. God's glory descending upon the people and dwelling with them. God's wisdom as as God's chief um, architect of creation. You see God taking counsel with himself throughout the Psalms. We see a relationship taking place within the Godhead. So one of my favorite movies of the 1980s is The NeverEnding Story. I'm just curious, have other people seen it as well? Okay, thank God. (laughs) You never really know. When you watch things as a kid, you just assume everybody has. If you haven't seen The NeverEnding Story, it's so much fun. Uh, But the story, it tells the story of this boy, Sebastian, and he gets his hands on this really old, ancient book, and he skips class in order to go read it in the, in the attic of his, of his school. And the book, as he's reading it, you see the, the story pan out on the screen. And the book is about these mythical creatures. Some are like rock giants or, or snail, racing snails, you know, things like this. Uh, and you learn about this fanciful world uh, that, that's um, unfolding. But unfortunately, this fanciful world is is quickly deteriorating. It's sort of evolving into this nebulous nothing, is what it's called, the nothing. And so the whole story is, is this world sort of worrying and trembling as the nothing continues to consume their world. And as the story progresses, Sebastian slowly realizes that it's his own imagination that is able to combat the nothing. He realizes that as he's reading the story, the things that he's imagining is actually guiding the characters in the book itself, and it's even building new land, it's building new story within um, the book. So his imagination is able to combat and undo the great and terrible nothing. Well, as we read through the four Gospels uh, in the Bible, we see that the opposite happens of what Sebastian encountered. We see that the inner thoughts of God, the inner relations of God, the metaphors and the stories of the Old Testament actually broke into our world. They actually broke into our world. God's word, God's law, God's glory, God's wisdom took on flesh and walked among us. This Jesus Christ, he received worship. He forgave sins and he even raised people from the dead. He did things that only God can do. And in the wake of this, we see the apostles and they're totally confused. We see the writings of the early church and they're trying to make sense of what it was that happened in Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They turn to the Old Testament and they mine the Old Testament of all of these interrelational descriptions of God himself. We see this language applied to Jesus. And not just to Jesus, but also the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit as well. One of the the statements in the New Testament that I especially love, it's very simple, it's just three words, uh, but St. John writes in one of his epistles that God is love. That God is love. Which is kind of a a weird thing to say. Now, if if you've grown up in church world, that's, that's a very common thing to say, but if you think about it, you don't say that somebody is love itself. Love is an attribute what you would say is that somebody is very compassionate or someone is loving. They have the characteristics of love, but not someone is love. But this is, in fact, what John says. So if, if God is love, then what is the object of his love? What is it that God loves? And, and you could say us, and that would be a, a perfect good Sunday school answer, but even before the creation of the world, What would be the object of God's love? Would it not? You're right. Yes, you're totally right, Rafe. Good job. This is why you have kids in the service, because they get it. (laughs) Because God, the object of God's love is his son, Rafe. It is himself. Oh, that made me so happy. (laughs) We see God's mutual, his giving and his taking We see God's to and fro. We see love given and love received within the Godhead himself. So in the Eastern Orthodox Church, a common way of portraying the Trinity, and you may have seen icons of this, uh, is, is to portray the Trinity as three persons sitting around a table, enjoying a meal with one another, handing bread to each other, swapping stories with one another, laughing with one another, enjoying one another's company. This is the beauty of the Trinity, my friends. This is the beauty of the Trinity that I would like to spend the rest of our time discussing. So for the rest of our time, we're going to be looking at John uh, chapter 16, uh, which you can find on page 8 in your bulletin. And what I want to do is spend some time talking about each of the persons of the Trinity. So there will be three sections to the sermon. And the context of this, John 16, the context of this, it comes from a very long uh, teaching that Jesus has for his disciples, uh, right before he's about to be handed over to the Jews uh, and the Roman officials to be crucified. And I think that if we look at this passage, there's going to be something distinct to learn about each member of the Trinity. And my prayer is that this morning our hearts would be stirred to love God more because of this beautiful, mysterious nature of our God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now when we read that, it's it's easy for us to think that Jesus probably said this because he's rushed for time, right? He knows that he's going to be betrayed pretty quickly, And sure, that that might be a part of it. That might be why Jesus says this. But isn't it always the case that Jesus always has more to teach us? Like, he always has something else that he could teach us, right? Jesus is the perfect human who lived life to the absolute fullest. He is the wisest, he is the most loving. He is the most generous, the most virtuous, the most brilliant, the most intellectual, the the smartest human who's ever walked this planet. Jesus was a genius, and he had uh, in his geniusness, ingenuity, yes, we'll say that, (laughs) was abundant. It was deep and wide. So of course he has more to share. Of course he'll always have more to share. For all of eternity, he'll always have more to share. Do you remember the, the story of the transfiguration? when Jesus takes his friends up onto the mountain and he begins to radiate with light, and if you remember the sermon from many, many moons ago, right, before Lent, he's not just increasing his glory in that moment. It's not like he's turning the dial up to 11 in that moment. What Jesus is doing is he's pulling the veil back and he's showing his friends, he's showing the disciples what he has always been like all along. All along. He is God veiled in human flesh. And then in that moment, he discusses with Moses and Elijah all the future plans uh, that he has. You see, Jesus the genius still has more plans. For the disciples, he certainly does. He says to them, you can't bear this right now. You can't bear everything that, that I have to tell you right now in this moment. And surely he's talking about the cross, But certainly he's also alluding to his death and his resurrection as well. And so much more even beyond that. Jesus knows that soon the Holy Spirit is coming. He can't tell that to them now, right? And so some of the apostles, they will stay in Jerusalem. Their story is to stay in Jerusalem and to be be martyred, to be persecuted, just as Jesus was. Some of them will go to the far corners of the world, announcing the coming of his kingdom. They'll be stoned, they'll be crucified, they'll be beheaded. So certainly Jesus doesn't want to tell them that now. There's enough on on their plates ahead of them. He doesn't want to overwhelm them with that. And isn't that true for us too? Maybe martyrdom, That's, that's not exactly what I mean. But isn't it true that all of us, that God has more plans for us that we ourselves cannot bear now? He can't possibly share with all of you in one sitting all the plans for the rest of your life. You couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. As I look back at my own life and I think about all the twists and the turns, the steps forward, the steps backward, all the roadblocks that I encountered, the steep climbs that I had to do, I'm not so sure that I would have chosen that path ahead of me. And I think a lot of you would probably say the same thing about your lives, too. So I'm so grateful for those of you in this room who have walked with Jesus for many decades. You know, you have gradually been transformed by the mind of Christ, his, his brilliant mind. And when we sit down and we chat and, and I share my anxieties with you, you remind me of the peace of Christ. You kind of cool my burners a little bit and chill me out. When I explain about how I'm confused about things, you respond back to me and remind me of the purposes that God has for me, even though they might be hidden right now. And that is what we are supposed to do for one another we remind one another about the genius of Jesus Christ. And I'm using just, just so you know, in case you don't like the word genius, I'm trying to stick with G's here. So my wife was like, really? The genius? Like <laughs> But yes, we're trying, we're trying to do some alliteration here. So we need to remind ourselves to trust in the genius of Jesus. So how does this happen? Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he's sending the Holy Spirit to us as a guide. He says this in verse 13. When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So, there's two things I want to say about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. First, Jesus has a rather high opinion of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, this in this same um, in the same message, that it's better for him to depart, otherwise the Spirit wouldn't be able to come. And you can hear this excitement in Jesus's voice. He wants the Holy Spirit to come. So one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, he said that the Son and the Holy Spirit are like the two hands of God the Father, equal in glory and majesty. Now remember what I said earlier, these metaphors break down at some point. Don't don't totally totally lean on that to understand the Trinity. But I think it's helpful to remember just as the early what the early church believed which was that the holy spirit and Jesus are both sent by the father or both sent by the father for the building up and the edification of the church and Jesus is so excited for this he's excited for that guiding spirit to come so second the holy spirit is a perfect guide he is a perfect guide have you ever had this experience where you go to the to a new airport and maybe the airport's just absolutely massive, just terminal after terminal, and you have no idea where your gate is. And so what do you do? You, you go and you find an info desk, you, know, you look for one of those, those blue squares with the eye on it, and you go and you ask this person, this guide, for advice on where to go. And what do they do? Well, they, they, they look up on their thing where you're supposed to go, and they point and they tell you where to go. Well, some of us think that the Holy Spirit is like that person who sits behind the desk, who simply points and tells us where to go. And yes, the Holy Spirit does give us instruction. Or we think that the Holy Spirit gives us instruction, but then it's ultimately up to us to navigate our ways through the crazy airport and to eventually arrive to the gate. But that's not the portrait of the Holy Spirit that we have. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is a paraclete. It's a fancy way of saying he's our advocate, he's our traveling companion, he's our helper, he's our guide. He doesn't just sit at a desk waiting for us to go and figure it out. No, the Holy Spirit goes with us. He gets up from the desk, he puts his arm around us, and he walks us to the gate. He's with us, he's within us even. He pries our our feet out of traps when we're stuck. He brings cool water to us when we're thirsty. He shields and protects us from attacks of the evil one. You see, the Holy Spirit is a perfect, loving guide. Follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the Father. So Jesus doesn't explicitly state a whole lot about God the Father in this passage. All we have is is in verse 15 where it says, All that the Father has is mine. But what we see here is that we see the generosity of the Father here. It is implicit throughout this passage the Father is the source of everything that the, that the Son and that the Spirit has. And the Father, out of his abundant love, continues to pour that out. And that is implicit not just in this passage, but throughout the entire Gospel of John and the entire Bible, of course. Now, a lot of us uh, have, have had negative fatherly experiences, shall we say. And have been able to sit down and have these conversations with, with some of you. Some of you have fathers who have neglected you. Maybe they, they left, they abandoned you, they weren't around. Maybe in horrible experiences, you've had abusive fathers. Or you've had fathers that completely abandoned you and left you alone. And so the idea of being, of God being a father, this, this isn't something you're interested in. You know, God the Son, God the Spirit, you can take those, but God the Father, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of deal with that on another day, right? But human beings whether bad fathers or good fathers or bad mothers or good mothers or bad friends or good friends, human beings can never be the lens through which we look and understand God. We have to let God be the one who who sets the template of what a father is. And the scriptures tell us that every father in the world is supposed to derive his name from God the Father. God the Father, who is our generous Father in heaven. And this is what we see modeled through Jesus and through the Spirit. Jesus adores his Father in heaven. Just read through the Gospel of John. You can see it through almost all of his teachings. He adores his Father in heaven. He basks in the Father's love. He's passionate about being in his presence, about stealing away and being with the Father in prayer. When asked on how to pray, he teaches the disciples, pray to the Father. Our Father who art in heaven. This is what Jesus loves to do, and that's what he tells us to do as well. The Son and the Spirit love the Father. So Father, follow their lead. Receive the generosity of God the Father. The Father who adopts us as his children. The Father who, when we stumble and fall, patiently waits for us at the end of the road for our return. The Father who eagerly listens to our prayers Who lavishes his children with good gifts, the father who sent his only begotten son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save and rescue the world. So maybe this only describes my family. I'm sure this never happens in your families, because they're all just wonderful and perfect, right? Uh, But maybe at the end of a long day, when you've been running errands, and they're not errands that like the kids totally enjoy, right? And you come home, you've, you've, you've already had dinner, it's past their bedtime, everyone's exhausted, maybe there's tears coming out of their eyes, and you as a parent know, I need to get these kids in bed. I need to get these kids in bed. But the kids maybe aren't having anything of it, right? So pouting, screaming, not taking their shoes off, things like that. Again, I'm sure this is not your family at all, right? Well, you kind of have two options in this moment. The first option is to look at the kids and say, "It is your bedtime. you will take off your shoes, you will brush your teeth, and you will go to bed right now and If that's the option you pursue you you, you kind of know what's next, right i don't want to it's not my bedtime you know they, I'm not tired, I want to stay up like this is this is the routine. We all know this, and obviously, you know these kinds of things just lead to more and more rampage <laughs> and then finally. Finally, if you're lucky enough, when you, when you get the child in bed, it's through sweat, it's through tears, maybe there's blood on the floor, I don't know. Like, it's, it's a very frustrating experience. So that's option one. Option two, which I, I wish I picked option two more often, but option two is to kneel down next to that tired child who doesn't want to go to bed, and just open your arms and say, kiddo, come here. Come here, kiddo. And you scoop up the child. You slip off their shoes. You take them to the bathroom. Maybe you brush their teeth for them. And then you lay them down in their bed, sing them a song, give them a kiss on the forehead. And what is the demeanor of the child in that moment? Usually their eyes are closed. Like they're ready. They're, they're, they're out of it right there in that moment, right? Right? This is the generosity of our Father in heaven. He stoops down to our level. When we're fussy, when we're cranky, when we're tired, he comes down, stoops down to our level. He wraps his arms around us. He embraces us. He takes care of our mess. He wipes the tears from our eyes. And he takes us to a place of rest. This is the generous, gracious, good, and gentle Father. So friends, I invite us today to trust in the genius of Jesus, to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and to receive the generosity of the Father in heaven. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, Holy Spirit, we praise you, Lord, that you are a God of relationship, that you are love. and We thank you, Lord, that that out of your abundance of love you created us and you redeemed us, and you bring us into fellowship with you, into fellowship within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to see you more as our Father, that we may see you more as our older brother, as the Son, and that we may know that you walk with us, your perfect and most beautiful comforter, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen.